and welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. We are here again with another hour of geeky news, views and general stuff. I am, once again, flying solo this week. We do still have some interviews and some chats in the pipeline. They just haven't happened yet because people have busy lives, man. They have busy lives and they just don't have time to talk to me. Either that or everybody hates me and I'll die alone. It's one of those two. Anyway, um... First of all, a quick apology. If you are listening to this, you may be able to hear power tools in the background. That is because here at Venusian Towers, we are having some building work done. And, well, I asked them nicely if they'd be quiet, and they basically said no. So, um, yeah, power tools, that kind of thing may be happening. I will try and record around them, but, um, hey, we're on a deadline, so whoo. Anyway, we're going to get into the geeky news. Now, this is technically comics news, but I think it's gone wider than that now. Uh, I mentioned last week that a school board in one of the counties in Tennessee had voted unanimously to remove Art Spiegelman's brilliant graphic novel Mouse from its schools. Now, I was pretty clear last week that I thought this was not a great thing because it isn't. But there's been some developments. First of all, I am very pleased to report that the entire world has joined in the sound condemnation of this ridiculous decision. Um, And some people have kind of said, you know, are you not overreacting just a little bit? This is one school board in one county in one state of the US. And other people have said, guys, it's Tennessee. Come on. What do you expect? And I hear that. I do. Uh, it's not as though Mouse has been banned by all schools across America. But I think we do have to take this kind of thing seriously. And one of the reasons why I think we have to take this seriously is I've read Mouse. OK, and that is a book about escaping the Holocaust. The Holocaust happened because things like this happened and people didn't speak up. People let it happen. People said, oh, yeah, OK, they're crazy, but let them do them. And we see where that leads if you let it go. And I don't accept, actually, that that's an overreaction. You can see that things are happening in various. This is not just an American thing. There are things that are happening in various parts of the world where this kind of nonsense, this we will not let you read books attitude is becoming accepted and i'm a geek books are what i do i won't have it so first of all nobody's overreacting there is no amount of overreaction you can do to this kind of stuff the second thing that's happened is the school boards come out and said no 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 no, no. you're all misunderstanding it's got nothing to do with the fact that this book is about the holocaust the content is inappropriate for children in schools well i think i touched on this last week as well that's nonsense there is a fairly non-provocative bit of nudity in there. And I know Americans are more sensitive about this kind of thing than, than Europeans, but even so, it's a mouse. It's an actual mouse. Mice are generally nude. If anything's weird about this book, it's the fact that the mice are wearing clothes in most of it. Okay, it's not a sexualized image. It's not in any way inappropriate as far as I can see. And I was a teacher for 16 years. 
I, you know, I, I take this stuff seriously. I do think there are things you should not show kids. This is not among those things. Uh, there's also, they say, bad language. I, I, I flicked through my, I, I grant you, I only flicked through my copy of Mouse. But I flicked through my copy of Mouse. I can find a goddamn. That's it. Okay, the, the, these mice are not effing and blinding all the way through the book, which, considering what's going on in the story, is actually quite impressive. They show admirable linguistic restraint, I would say. So there's all of that. But there's been an absolutely glorious side effect. And honestly, I think I actually kind of want to thank that school board in Tennessee for this, because it turns out that the old adage, there is no such thing as bad publicity, is true. You see, I sold my last copy of Mouse a couple of days before this controversy started. And because I'm incredibly lazy and I was very busy because January is that kind of month, I haven't got around to reordering it. So when the controversy hit, it reminded me, oh, I need to stock up on some more copies of Mouse. Because I'll be honest with you, it's not a book I like to be out of stock of. It's one of the things that you show people when they ask you what you can recommend. It's, it's a go-to book. I went to my supplier and attempted to order some copies of Mouse. And they said, yeah, no problem. It'll be a while, though, because we're out of stock. And the reason they're out of stock is because everybody's buying copies of Mouse. People who hadn't heard of the book until the controversy hit are going, oh, that sounds interesting. We'll check that out. And that's wonderful. It's wonderful because it's a... Br I keep saying this. I can't, I can't say it enough. It's a wonderful book. And also, yeah, it's quite old. It won the Pulitzer back in the 80s. It's quite an old book. So some renewed interest is bringing an absolute classic of literature. This is not even a classic of comics. Okay, this is a classic of world literature. It's a Pulitzer Prize winning book. It's bringing it to a new audience, which is fabulous. As a customer in the shop remarked to me this week, um, actually because they'd come to buy a copy of Mouse and I didn't have any. Truly, if you want to make sure a book experiences a huge spike in, in sales, have somebody somewhere ban it. It seems to work. I'm not going to go on any more about this because we're not a political show. And everything else I have to say about the school board that has also banned To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee would be political. Because when you look at the list of books they've banned, they all have a fairly common theme. And that theme is that racism is bad. And when you start to see a pattern like that, I think you can draw your own conclusions. And, you know, that's all I have to say on the matter. So what else is happening in the wacky world of geek? Well, Give me one second. I just need to sound the spoiler horn for a minute. Spoilers! Spoilers! Because it is time to give you your weekly update on out-of-date episodes of the book of Boba Fett. I have deliberately not seen this week's episode yet. If you're listening to this uh, when it drops on Thursday the 3rd of February, obviously... There was an episode yesterday. I haven't seen it yet. And I think I'm going to make that the practice here, because much as I love to talk about the book of Boba Fett, I know that some of you work for a living and you can't just drop everything and watch an episode of a sci-fi show on Disney Plus the instant it drops. So I figure if I'm a week behind, then I'm less likely to be talking about stuff you haven't had a chance to see yet. And I really want to talk about episode five of the book of Boba Fett. 
Because, look, if you saw it, wasn't that odd? I mean, it was brilliant, but it was really odd. Quick reminder, I have sound of the spoiler horn. Everything I say from now will be a spoiler. If you haven't had a chance to see it yet and you don't want spoilers, jump forward about three and a half minutes and we'll be good. Okay? Okay, they've all gone. Everybody's still here cool with hearing spoilers, yeah? All right, you were warned. Right, so, why did they drop an episode of The Mandalorian into the middle of the Book of Boba Fett? It was a really odd decision, I think. Because if there are any fans of The Mandalorian out there who aren't watching the Book of Boba Fett, season three of The Mandalorian is going to really have them scratching their heads a little bit. Because quite a lot of things happened that are huge in terms of Din Djarin's life in that episode. So let's work through it, okay? We knew that the Mandalorian was going to appear in this episode. That was really obvious from the end of episode four. It, it was genuinely not so much teased as trailed by the ending of episode four. So I was expecting to see him. I just wasn't expecting that that's all we'd see. So what did we have? We started out on what I have to say is a really cool space station-y type affair. This huge sort of crescent that's sitting in space. That looked amazing. Whoever designed that, absolutely full marks. And this is where the covert of Mandalorians that Jin belongs to is currently hiding out. So he turns up and there are only two others left. The armorer still survives uh, and one other Mandalorian, the big dude. I know he has a name. I can't remember what it is. And frankly, I'm too lazy to go and look it up. I'm not that big of a fan. I don't need to know everybody's name. So he turns up and there's a bit of an argument and they get into a f the two Mandalorians get into a fight with the uh, armorer as sort of referee. Din Jarin wins because he's the hero of the show. So of course he does. So that means Din gets to keep the Darksaber, which the other Mandalorian had wanted because it's part. it was made by one of his ancestors or something. And fine and dandy, fair enough. And then the armorer asks both of them if they've ever removed their helmets or allowed their helmets to be removed. And Din, of course, has to say yes, because for a man who doesn't take his helmet off, he took his helmet off a lot in season two. And so she then just offhandedly casts him out and says, then you are a Mandalorian no more, which seems harsh, but that's the code. This is the way and so on. Uh, so off he goes. Seems odd. You'd think he'd at least try and argue his case because he's now met other Mandalorians who do take off their helmets like it's not important. He's met Bo-Katan. He's met Boba Fett. But no, off he, off he goes. This is after, though, he's had the armorer make something out of Beskar for um, little Grogu. So I presume something that with that is going to happen in either a future episode of Boba Fett or in a future episode of The Mandalorian. We then got the hilarity of uh, The Mandalorian having to check his weapons at the airport which I really enjoyed. Of course, he has to, to fly on a commercial aircraft because he... Spacecraft? Spacecraft. He has to fly on a commercial spacecraft because the his ship, the Razor Crest, totally destroyed. So off he goes, lands in Tatooine, goes to see his mechanic friend, who 
has sorted him out a new ship. And this is the the link to the prequels that I mentioned in last week's show. Uh, his new ship is an Abu N1 Starfighter, which is one of the coolest ships in the Star Wars universe. Uh, you know how I feel about the prequels. I am not a fan. But my goodness, the design of some of those spacecraft was amazing. I love the Naboo N1 Starfighter design. It reminds me of Spitfires in just the best way. So he's got that. Now, that also has some implications because the Razor Quest was quite big. And there was room in the Razor Crest to have prisoners. He even had a whole rack in the first season of um, people frozen in carbonite, like a wardrobe with people in carbonite hanging up. And that makes sense because he's a bounty hunter. In effect, by going for an N1 Starfighter now, he's traded in his transit van that was the Razor Crest, and now he's got a motorcycle. He can't be a bounty hunter anymore if he's flying that thing. Where's he going to put his prisoners? There is the little bubble behind the cockpit where the astromech is supposed to go, which has been cleared out because everyone knows how Din feels about droids. But he might fit one person in there. It's not practical for being a bounty hunter. So does that mean he's going to have to have another ship in the future? And this is just a little cool thing he's, he's running around in for now. Or... Are we going to see some developments in The Mandalorian where he stops being a bounty hunter and starts being something else? It's an interesting question to which I don't have an answer. But it's fun speculating, which is why I'm doing it. Anyway, that was basically it. The only character we see who's a regular from the Book of Boba Fett was Fennec Shand, who kind of drops in literally in the last two minutes to ask if Mando wants to go and work for Boba Fett for a bit. And it's odd, and it makes me wonder... Because while I personally am loving the Book of Boba Fett and every single thing about it, I appear to be in a minority. Lots of people aren't big fans of this show. Well, they are fans of The Mandalorian. Now, clearly, when they were making this season of the Book of Boba Fett, they were not thinking they had a duffer on their hands. They were thinking this was going to be massively popular. So did they think that the popularity of the Book of Boba Fett would be greater than the popularity of The Mandalorian. And so they've dropped what is basically an episode of The Mandalorian into this show to, I don't know, have The Mandalorian pick up some cool points. Because if that was the intention, that hasn't worked. What they've actually done, and this cannot possibly have been what they meant to do, what they've actually seemed to have done is reminded a whole lot of people who aren't really enjoying a story about Boba Fett that much that the, the, the Mandalorian they really want to see stories about is Din Djarin. And they really would rather be watching a season of The Mandalorian. And that is one heck of an unintended consequence. I don't know. The whole thing seems weird to me. I enjoyed the episode hugely. I, it was like an episode of The Mandalorian, and I really enjoy The Mandalorian. So... I have no complaints. It might be my favourite episode of the season so far. Just an odd choice. I, I genuinely can't quite work out what they were trying to do with that and how they're going to deal with it when we get season three of The Mandalorian and a reasonable chunk of the audience doesn't know why he's flying an N1 Starfighter, where his Beskar spear's gone and why he's not part of that covert anymore. 
These are huge changes. So, yeah, I don't know. It's weird. It's weird and strange. And, uh, yeah, I guess all will be revealed. I mean, you you can't really bet against Lucasfilm. They've rarely... Mm, actually, I was about to say Lucasfilm will rarely let us down. And then I remembered all the times they have. So, mm, we'll hold fire on this one, I think. Okay, in other geeky TV news that is not about shows on Disney+, Plus. yes, we are moving away from Disney+, Plus. there is some potentially exciting news about Legends of Tomorrow, which is a show you may not be watching. I know I'm not, because it's not available on any of the TV services that I have access to, but I have seen episodes through perfectly legal means, honest, Your Honour, and I've quite enjoyed what I've seen. It's good fun. If you don't know it, it's basically a time travel show uh, where a bunch of heroes who are mostly sidekicks from other CW shows, if I'm honest, uh, travel through time and sort stuff out. I suppose in many ways it's like Doctor Who would be if it had been created by Americans, which is to say nothing at all like Doctor Who. But anyway, it's, it's, it's good dumb fun. Uh, it's well produced and I've, I've kind of enjoyed what I've seen. Uh, but they have now cast. One of my favourite actors, Donald Faison, uh, who is going to be playing a heavy air quote mystery character. If you don't know Donald Faison, he's the guy from Scrubs, uh, who isn't the dude with the weird hair. He's the bald guy from Scrubs. Um, now, it looks as though he's going to be playing a character called Booster Gold, which makes me very happy because I really like Booster Gold and I know that several of you are now looking at, you, at your listening device and going, who? So, Booster Gold. Booster Gold would be a good fit in Legends Tomorrow because he is also a time travel. He's basically from the future where everyone's got superpowers. And in, in the future, he's kind of nobody. And he wants to be somebody. So he nicks some time travel technology, comes back to our time with all his futuristic gizmos and abilities, and suddenly he's a hero, except, of course, he's terrible at it. He's a great comic character. And for once, I mean comic character as in comedy rather than comic character as in character from comics, although he is that too. Isn't language confusing? It is sometimes. Anyway, it sounds like he's going to be playing Booster Gold because the official description for Faison's character reads as follows. The legends first encounter this character at a different phase of his career, whose golden years are in the rearview mirror. He is a good guy deep down. His ego is looking for a boost that only fame, fortune and glory can provide. Now, first of all, that is a perfect description of the character of Booster Gold. And they've got the words golden and boost into the thing. Of course, it's Booster Gold. Um, Cool. Absolutely cool. Really looking forward to that. Uh, if you want to know more about Booster Gold, he actually is, for the first time in forever, in his own comic. Anyway, he's sharing it with the Blue Beetle, who is another character you've probably never heard of, but is also quite cool. Uh, so nip down to your local comic shop and uh, check out Blue and Gold. It is actually quite a fun um, knockabout, rompy, superhero, buddy story. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. It is great fun. Booster Gold, his star appears to be rising. And sticking with DC, there have been some on-set photographs from the set of Batgirl, which is currently shooting in Glasgow. 
Showing J.K. Simmons reprising his role as Commissioner Gordon. You may remember him playing Commissioner Gordon in Justice League and subsequently in Zack Snyder's Justice League. And with apologies to fans of the Justice League film, because I know there are some, I'm just going to say that I'm glad he's in Batgirl because he's one of the things in Justice League that didn't suck. Links to the Comic Book Resources article uh, featuring those on-set photographs in the show notes. And so, moving on, let's talk about comics properly with some comics reviews. And we're going to start with something a bit odd. It's brilliant, but it's odd. And it's one of those weird things that only a company as conservative as DC could possibly have come up with something this weird. I am, of course, talking about DC Comics Monkey Prince, which is... Very strange. Brilliant, but strange. If you are a person my age, you might be thinking, Monkey Prince, is that, is that something to do with the TV show Monkey? And yeah, kind of. Um, the Monkey Prince is based on the character of the Monkey King. Very loosely based, I will add, but still. Based on the character of the Monkey King, who features in a piece of classic Chinese mythology called The Journey to the West, in which a young Buddhist priest has to go to India, which, if you're Chinese, is in the West, to collect some Buddhist scriptures. Because the journey will be long and hard and evil forces will try and stop him, the young Buddhist monk is given some bodyguards in the shape of Monkey, who is the Monkey King, spirit of mischief, who is kept in check by a sort of little golden band he has to wear, which uh, the priest can use to give him massive headaches. Also Sandy, who is a reformed water demon doing penance, and Pigsy, who is a pig demon who is also doing penance. And they journey across China into the West for a long time. Uh, in terms of the TV show, many, many episodes. And, you know, they fight evil doers on the way. It's brilliant. The, the, the 1970s TV series uh, is just brilliant. It used to be on BBC Two on a Friday evening, and I grew up just loving it. I'm pleased to report, having watched it as an adult, it holds up. In Monkey Prince, we are introduced to Marcus Sun, who is a kid who Grew up a little bit in Gotham. He's moved around many cities because of his parents' work, which we won't get into because it's a plot point. Uh, and he is a nervous kid. There is a reason for that. Uh, we are shown the reason he is a little bit nervous, uh, particularly around things that might look like black capes. Uh, I won't go into more detail than that because, again, it's a plot point. But he moved back to Gotham, new school, new kid, bit strange, gets bullied, all the usual stuff. And in the way of things, he meets a wise old man who works as a janitor in the high school, who reveals to Marcus an amazing truth about himself. Marcus is, in fact, the Monkey Prince. His real father is the Monkey King. And Marcus starts to lean into that role. I'm not going to say how and why, because, again, it's a plot point. It's not a spoiler that he does, though, because you see him on the cover as the Monkey Prince. It turns out, also not a spoiler because it's on the cover, the... Wise old man is actually Pigsy, the pig demon. So, you know, there is that link to the journey to the West. Now, I have to say at this point that my nervousness 
about cultural appropriation kind of kicks in at this point. Because what we have here is DC, a very Western company, taking a piece of culture from another culture and manipulating it, mucking it about. And that kind of thing does make me a little bit nervous. I'm relaxed about this, I think. It's written by a guy called Jean Luen Yang. It's drawn by a guy called Bernard Chang. Uh, It's coloured by a guy called Sebastian Cheng, and it's lettered by somebody called Janice Cheng. Uh, And it's edited by a woman called Jessica Cheng. In other words, there are a lot of people of Chinese heritage involved in this project. So they have a right to this culture. It's theirs. We can read it. It's fine. Okay. If it had been written by a guy called Bob Smith, drawn by a guy called Bernard Jones then there might be an issue. But as it is, it's fine. Actually, it's fine. Um, you get a nice little cameo from Batman being a bit of a dick, which is always fun. And we also discover that uh, Damien Wayne goes to high school. Who knew? I would have thought that Damien Wayne was the kind of kid who never bothered. And certainly, Bruce Wayne could surely get away with being a homeschooler. But no. So that's Monkey Prince out this week from DC Comics is £3.50 and it's a limited series. Uh, I'm not sure how many. I think it's five issues. And yeah, it's good, dumb fun. And speaking of good, dumb fun, uh, our other pick of the week this week is the excellent, the excellent. Um, Oh, how do you even begin? I need to take you back in time a little bit. Once upon a time, there was a comic book called X-Force, which was about one of the groups of X-Men that exist in the Marvel Universe. is the comic that introduced the world to a character called Deadpool. You might have heard of him. And for a long, long time, it was just your basic superhero team book. A little bit more violent than the X-Men. They were kind of like the militant wing sort of thing. But basically, it was like the X-Men. And then... A couple of weird British guys got hold of it. Peter Milligan and Michael Alred. Um, Peter Milligan is quite a weird out there writer. Uh, He cut his teeth like so many British writers in 2000 AD, where he's probably most famous for writing a series called Hooligan's Haircut, in which the main character was basically a sentient hairstyle. He's that kind of weird. And... Mike Alred is a wonderful artist. He's got a very distinctive style and he also uh, writes as well as draws and has done some very weird stuff. Uh, Most prominently, probably a character called Madman. And they changed X-Force in a way that a lot of people who didn't normally read X-Men comics really liked. And in a way that a lot of people who did read X-Men comics really didn't. And... That version of X-Force morphed into X-Statics, which remains to this day pretty much the only X-Men book I've ever read from the first issue to the last issue. I loved the X-Statics. They were very, very strange. Uh, They had weird members. They had weird opponents. And they were followed around by a legless alien called Dupe who sort of floated about filming everything. It was brilliant. 
It was weird and funky and funny and strange. And I absolutely loved it. And then it stopped. And then just before the pandemic hit, we got a one shot. Continue the story a little bit. And we were promised that there would be a new series featuring some of these characters, a sort of sequel series, if you like, that was coming soon. And then 2020 happened. And then 2021 happened. And we didn't get it. But now is 2022. And it has arrived. The ecstatics are still around. Um, they have a very different lineup now because, well, they keep dying. And unlike most Marvel characters, if one of the ecstatics dies, they have a tendency to stay that way. There is a new, younger, cooler superhero team in town. They are the excellent. And there's gonna be trouble. Written again by Peter Milligan, beautifully illustrated by Mike Allred and his wife Laura. It's just so nice to have a comic like this back on the rack again. It's strange, it's weird, it's self-conscious, it's just brilliant. It's just a fantastic read. It's probably the most interesting take on superheroes you're going to read this year. And it's such an interesting take on the, the very concept of superheroes that it's genuinely surprising that Marvel have put this out. This is the kind of thing you would expect one of the indie publishers to put out, kind of taking the mickey out of Marvel. So kudos to Marvel for being able to laugh at itself in this way. It really is just a brilliant book. I cannot recommend it highly enough. The excellent out this week from Marvel Comics is £3.50 and it is superb. Just superb. Now, there are other comics available this week, but I have been ridiculously busy with one of my other jobs and I just haven't had time to read any. I actually still haven't read quite a lot of last week's comics. It's been that kind of couple of weeks. So with that in mind, we will very swiftly move on and take a look at what's happening in... Okay, we're going to start with your James Webb Space Telescope update and we're going to make this the last of our regular James Webb Space Telescope updates because... Nothing's going to happen for a bit now. Uh, but the James Webb Space Telescope is now in the right place in orbit. It was there last week, too. It's continuing to cool down um, and to calibrate. So all of the instruments are being turned on and tested. And, uh, you know, the mirror alignment is, is being sorted. Everything's not cold enough yet for some of the instruments to actually work. So, you know. Just to, to, to underline how cold this thing has to be. And we've also had confirmation that the Ariane 5 rocket's orbital insertion of the James Webb Space Telescope was so precise and accurate, they've actually managed to save enough fuel to extend the mission life of this thing to about 20 years. That's double, double its original mission lifetime and it just goes to show the Ariane rocket may be expensive 
but it really is the best there is at what it does. Falcon 9s and your Falcon Heavies and your Starships, they may look cool, but they are not capable of the kind of precision that an Ariane can give you. And uh, I think, as I said last week, the Ariane 5 is nearly, nearly obsolete. It's going to be replaced by an even better Ariane, the Ariane 6, which comes online, I think, next year. So I think we can look forward to the European Space Agency and its Ariane rockets taking on quite a lot of the deep space missions, because I don't think that the Americans have got anything even slightly capable of that kind of accuracy. And I know the Russians don't. So unless the Chinese come up with something really cool, which is unlikely because their rockets are basically based on Russian technology. I, Europe really is absolutely at the head of the field here. So, you know, that's kind of cool. OK, also in space, we have some astronomy news because astronomers have discovered uh, what may be a medium sized black hole. Now, I know that doesn't sound that exciting, but trust me, it is. Uh, we've been looking for these things for a long time. And a new study suggests that an object in the Andromeda galaxy, that's the next galaxy along from where we are, uh, thought to be a collection of stars, could actually be a black hole of about 100,000 solar masses. That's 100,000 times more massive than our sun. Um, Anil Seth, uh, one of the lead scientists, is quoted as saying, uh, we have a very good detections of the biggest stellar mass black holes up to 100 times the size of our sun and supermassive black holes at the centres of galaxies that are millions of times the size of our sun. But there aren't any measurements of black holes between these. And that's a big gap. And it looks as though this discovery uh, made by uh, Anil Seth at the uh, University of Utah um, may, may just fill that gap. Why does that matter? Well, because... It answers a question. Up until this observation, we knew that there were relatively small black holes and we knew that there were supermassive black holes. What we didn't know was, well, but is are there regularly massive black holes? Are they are there quite big black holes? Are there other variations in size? Now that we know that there are, that can start us working out new things about how these celestial bodies are formed and also how they affect space-time around them. Because what all black holes are, are massively strong gravitational forces and gravity bends space and time. This is another step in us as a species being able to understand the universe around us, the way it's built, the way it's constructed, and the more we understand, the better. Heading back down to ground level, although not on Earth, it is true, uh, more stuff going on on Mars. We talked last week about the NASA's Perseverance rover, which had hit a little bit of a snag with its sample collection stuff. Um, they have actually now solved that problem. The, the issue was there were bits of, of gravel in the um, drill carousel thing that houses all the drill bits uh, that was causing a bit of a problem. They've solved the problem by literally by just dumping everything out onto the ground. And um, 
starting again with another drill hole. So that's all nicely sorted. And uh, NASA's Curiosity rover, which was sort of the, the, the precursor to Perseverance, uh, has also been doing some interesting stuff this week. Um, a new study found that several of the powdered rock samples that Curiosity has collected contained a kind of carbon associated with life processes on Earth. Scientists on the study have said that it's, it's hard to know what this could mean in the search for life, given that Earth and Mars are so very, very different. And yes, the kind of carbon they have found, um, carbon-13, I think, uh, one of the ways that that is produced on Earth is by living things. It's to do with how we break down matter. Um, but there are other ways of creating it. And I don't know. Things that could be evidence for life on Mars are always like things that could be aliens here on Earth. Yeah, it could be, but it never, ever is. So we don't want to get too excited. But at the same time, anything that is evidence for life on Mars is always just cool. And just cool is still cool. So, you know, there's that. Um, and before we leave space, it occurs to me that I talk about space all the time and I never give you any decent astronomy targets. So here's one. If you've got a telescope of any kind of size at all, even a decent pair of binoculars, in the event that we manage to get a clear sky, get up properly, properly, properly early in the morning and you can see an absolutely stunning Venus. Venus is up in the eastern sky uh, in the pre-dawn. So oh, no, pre-dawn's reasonably late. You need to be up about seven-ish. And look east. Look for a very, very, very bright spot of light indeed. And that is Venus. Uh, Venus is a really cool target to look through uh, a telescope at. If it's in phase, if it's full on, it just looks like a big bright dot. But a crescent Venus is a really cool thing to see. So uh, you might want to check that out. And if you are up early in the morning with your telescope or your binoculars and you want to check out something else, Mars is quite nearby at the moment. Um, and yes, looking at Mars is always cool through a scope because it looks like a proper planet. It properly is red. And you can make out some of the surface detail if you've got a halfway decent scope. And that's where so much stuff is going on. You know, you can look and see where curiosity and perseverance and spirit and opportunity all are. It's very cool. Uh, if you don't fancy getting up at the crack of flipping dawn, uh, I understand. Um, I like my duvet very much. I often go to bed uh, having set my telescope up so that I can get up early in the morning and get the scope out in the garden and have a look at stuff. And then I wake up and think, now, do you know what's cold outside? And I stay in bed. Uh, so if that's your bag, too, if you look to the western sky, quite low in the western sky, um, might be difficult to do from a garden because there might be houses in the way because it is, as I say, very low in the western sky. Um, but you look to the west in the evening and you can find Jupiter, um, which, again, a super cool uh, telescope target. Jupiter is a really cool planet to look at. You can make out the stripes on the surface. You can make out the big red dot if it happens to be facing in the right direction. And what I always really enjoy with Jupiter 
is if you've got a good pair of binoculars or a halfway decent scope, not only can you see Jupiter, but you can see the Galilean moons. Uh, the four largest moons of Jupiter uh, show up through a scope as really bright dots of light. You can't see them with the naked eye. You can see them in the telescope and they just look cool. You can't always see all four at once because sometimes one or more of them is behind Jupiter. But you can see them. And if you watch them for long enough, you can actually see them move. So there you go. If you got a telescope for Christmas or you got some Christmas money and you fancy buying yourself a telescope, those are some things you can look at this week. Except I'm looking out of my window right now and it's cloudy and it's likely to stay that way tonight. So, uh, you know, there's no rush. Hey, that, I guess, is it for space. So, we've done space. I suppose it's time to take a look at what's going on in the world of... Oh, I really love that jingle. Just a couple of relatively quick items of science news this week. Um, first of all, uh, looking back to 2020, but, you know, the information has only just been announced. Two storms in 2020 set new world records for lightning. Uh, this has been announced at the beginning of this month, on February the 1st, by the World Meteorological Organization, no less. Um, one record was for the longest single bolt, uh, captured by a flash of lightning that stretched for about 477 miles. 477 miles. Uh, from Texas to, to Mississippi during a storm on April 29th of uh, 2020. Um, the article I'm reading this from in uh, Live Science uh, rather helpfully tells me that that's roughly the distance between New York City and Columbus, Ohio, which would be great if I had any idea how far that was. Uh, but 477 miles, you are looking at about the distance between Plymouth on the south coast of the UK and Glasgow in Scotland's central belt. You wouldn't quite make it to Glasgow. Glasgow is a little bit further than that, but not much. So this is a huge distance. It's a massive massive bolt of lightning. Now, whether it's actually the longest lightning bolt in history, we can't really say for sure. It's the longest bolt that's been observed and recorded. Uh, but, you know, people are watching this stuff these days and have been watching it in some detail for some time. So uh, that's an impressive thing. Uh, the second record broken in 2020, uh, also announced at the beginning of this month by the WMO, is the record for the longest duration bolt, which goes to a flash of lightning that lit up the sky over Uruguay and northern Argentina on the 18th of June 2020 for a whopping 17.1 seconds. I've had light bulbs that haven't lasted that long. 17.1 seconds. Um, I, I toyed with the idea of just letting there be silence on, on air for 17.1 seconds to let you know how long that is. And then I realised that that's too much dead air. So I, I'm not going to do that. But it's a long time. And it might mean we have to reevaluate some of our metaphors if we're going to get lightning bolts like that. Because talking about something being like a flash of lightning now, 
Uh, he's actually going to start meaning, well, that hung around a bit, didn't it? Okay, moving on. It really wouldn't be a signed segment without some kind of mention of uh, the C word. And there have been some new studies released about COVID-19, uh, which are looking into what long COVID might be doing. Um, and scientists have identified four risk factors that may help predict whether a person is likely to go on to develop long COVID, having been infected uh, with SARS-CoV-2. And um, the first is kind of obvious, really. Uh, if you've got a large quantity of SARS-CoV-2 genetic material in your blood early in infection, um, that is an indicator that long COVID could be a problem. And yeah, that just that that's the sort of thing that you might sort of think just stands to reason. You've got a lot of COVID in you. It's going to last longer. Now, you know, as a layperson, I can understand that. Um, if you've got uh, an, an active infection with Epstein-Barr virus, uh, that also seems to be something of a trigger. Um, and if you've got immune molecules that target your body's proteins um, instead of targeting viruses or bacteria, uh, that's kind of an autoimmune condition. Uh, that is a high risk factor. And if you've got a pre-existing diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, um, that also uh, marks you out as higher risk. And that's really the worrying one, because type 2 diabetes is the most common form of diabetes, and it is the one that anyone can get. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's something to keep an eye on. So uh, if you fall into any of those categories, you might want to be a little bit more careful even than normal about dealing with COVID precautions. Okay, and since we've just done a really depressing news item from the, for the science segment, let's round up with something a little bit funnier. Um, everybody loves cats. This is the internet. Everybody loves cats. Obviously, if there is a story about cats and science, I'm going to take a look at it. And this one is from uh, the Royal Society. And it's an odd one. Basically, cats' brains are shrinking. Uh, it's a study published on the uh, January the 26th. Researchers have been comparing the cranial size of um, modern house cats with the cranial size of their closest wild relatives, uh, the African and European wildcats. That's Phoenis libisa and uh, Felis sylvestris, um, respectively. Um, the team found that the cranium size, and therefore the brain size, in domesticated cats has shrunk significantly over the past 10,000 years or so. Um, so that suggests that domestication is making cats have to think less. And when you think about it, that makes sense. Um, cats are weird creatures in that it seems quite likely that they domesticated themselves. Um, you know, people didn't do with cats what they did with dogs. Cats started hanging around humans because humans were really convenient and humans tolerated cats because cats were kind of useful and also cute. And if you are a cat, that is hanging around humans, you don't have to hunt anymore. 
you still might for fun and anyone who owns a cat will be familiar with the um, various small birds and rodents in various states of aliveness that your cat will bring to you from time to time uh, but they don't have to hunt and they don't have to be wary of predators and they don't have to find shelter or do any of the things a wild animal has to do because they just look at you and you feed them so yeah of course they don't need that big brain anymore and brains are expensive if your body can do without some brain power then over time it's going to so next time you're looking at your cat and you think do you know you're cute but you really are dumber than a rock you may be right cats are getting stupider and finally in the science section what is perhaps the very very geekiest science news story of the week um if you are listening to this on the day it comes out it is thursday the 3rd of february which means that yesterday was the 2nd of february which means it was groundhog day a thing that i genuinely thought had been made up for the bill murray movie until relatively recently but it is a thing so if you are unfamiliar with Groundhog Day. Uh, basically, in a little town called Puxatawney in Pennsylvania, um, on the 2nd of February every year, uh, they get a groundhog to come out of its burrow. And if it tells them it sees its shadow, that means that there will be six more weeks of wintry weather. And if it doesn't see its shadow, then there won't. And yes, that is a weird, weird tradition. And I do not know where it comes from, but there you go. I've never been to Puxatawney, so it doesn't matter. Uh, the Groundhog, of course, is called Puxatawney Phil, as you will know if you've seen Groundhog Day. And uh, it was first done in 1887. So it's a relatively new stupid tradition. Um, at least in Britain, our stupid traditions are centuries old. This is something that was made up by people who people who are currently alive may have met. Anyway, this year, he definitely did see his shadow. And so... That suggests that Pennsylvania will experience six more weeks of winter. Except, will they? Because how accurate is Puxatawney Phil? How many times in the history of this tradition has he been right? Well, I'm going to shock you now. Because it turns out that groundhogs are rubbish at predicting the weather. Uh, someone's actually done a study because of course they have. And it turns out that Puxatawney Phil has been correct about 39% of the time. Uh, now, statistically, you would expect him to get it right about, you know, 50%, somewhere around the 50% mark just by chance. So he's actually worse than random. Um, and it actually gets better because if you compare him with weather outcomes since 1969, which is where we have actual, you know, properly scientific weather records. Um, it goes down to 36%. So, you know, basically, if you want to know what the weather's going to do for the next six weeks, don't ask a groundhog. They apparently don't know. Good grief. Now, that is a shock, isn't it? I know I'm amazed. Anyway, with that, I think it's time to stop pretending we're talking about science and move on. And we will move on to the Geek Community Notice Board. And we're going to start with a very quick reminder about the Geek Pub Quiz. 
We are going to remind you of this every week until it happens, because we are excited that it's happening. So, Sunday, February the 20th, half past seven, at Major Tom's Social. The Geek Pub Quiz returns. It's going to be epic. It's going to be great. I am so looking forward to it. So, if you haven't put it in your diaries already, 7.30, Sunday, 20th of February. That's not long now. Don't miss it. Uh, I also just want to give a quick plug to The Secret Lair. Uh, their Monday Night Tales from the Yawning Portal campaign for D&D is now fully subscribed, uh, as is their um, Wednesday Night Mythic Odysseys of Theros D&D campaign. Uh, so you can't join those campaigns now. Uh, but if you do want to get into some D&D, the, the Secret Lair is the place to go. Uh, so if you want to avoid missing out on future campaigns, you're going to want to subscribe to their Twitch channel. Uh, links in the show notes, but it's, I'll also tell you here, uh, their Twitch channel is to be found uh, on http colon slash slash twitch.tv slash the secret lair, all one word. That's https colon slash slash twitch.tv slash the secret lair. Uh, you're looking at um, a £40 a month subscription to be part of their D&D thing. Um, that gets you membership to the Secret Lair, uh, which means you can take part in the campaigns. Uh, these are generally three-hour sessions starting about half seven. Um, and, you know, the, 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 you get a professional DM. It's all brilliantly done. Um, and you also will get a monthly mystery mini figure thing um, as well. Uh, it's actually really good. Value. If you play D&D regularly, 40 quid a month for all of that is really good value. Uh, so check out their Twitch channel uh, or links in the show notes and um, discover the joy of playing D&D. I recently went back to D... Well, recently. Uh, late 2019, just before the pandemic hit, I went back to playing D&D after a gap of about 30 years. And I cannot tell you how much fun it still is. I love playing D&D. Uh, the campaign that I was part of, it's kind of ground to a halt because our DM's really busy. But honestly, it's a brilliant game. It's a great way to socialise. It's a great way to tell each other stories. And uh, I cannot recommend D&D highly enough. It's one of the coolest things that geeks can do. And finally, in terms of geek community notices, um, I just want to give... A quick plug to John Suntries and the Word Balloon podcast. I've mentioned it on here before, links in the show notes. Uh, I mentioned it this week particularly because a while ago, John Suntries interviewed Art Spiegelman, the guy behind Mouse. And it was an absolutely brilliant interview at the time. One of the things that's resulted from the current nonsense surrounding the banning of Mouse by that ridiculous Tennessee School Board, is that Suntries has reissued that Spiegelman interview in which they talk a lot about Mouse. They get into other political things that have got Spiegelman into controversial waters in the past. Uh, there was a, he, he wrote a foreword uh, for a, a Marvel publication about the history of um, various Marvel Comics characters in which he made a joke about in the 1940s, uh, Captain America was fighting the Red Skull. And now there's an orange skull in the White House. Um, not perhaps the wittiest of jokes, but 
um, Marvel took great exception to it and uh, insisted that he removed it. And he insisted that he wasn't going to be censored. And so they didn't run his forward in the book in the end. I think it was published later in The Guardian as an essay. Uh, but they talk about that. Uh, Spiegelman is a fascinating guy. And it's, it's a really good interview. So links in the show notes to that or just search for Word Balloon wherever fine pods are casted. You can probably find it where you found this if you're listening to the podcast version of this. And actually, just generally, if you have even a mild interest in comics, I would very strongly recommend listening to the Word Balloon podcast. It's probably the best interview show that talks to comics creators that there is. Suntries is an interesting guy. And he's got a great, relaxed interviewing style. And he gets all the rock stars on the show. If you're a big name creator in comics, well, British and American comics, at least, um, you've probably been on Word Balloon more than once. So uh, you might want to check that out, too. Oh, my goodness. And I nearly forgot. Um, you still have time just to bid on some of the artwork in the Thought Bubble charity auction, which is currently taking place on eBay. If you go to the Thoughtbubble website, uh, that's thoughtbubblefestival.com, you can find a link to that, uh, or there will be a link in the show notes as well. So uh, check that out. There is some great stuff there. Some of it is going for quite a lot of money now. Uh, well, into the low hundreds of pounds, at least. Uh, it's worth every penny of it. And, you know, it's part of Thoughtbubble's continued charity work. So uh, go and check that out as well. And that just about wraps us up for this week. Thank you, as ever, for your kind attention. And just very quickly to say, if you have any comments about anything that we've covered in the show today or in previous shows, or you've got something that you think you'd like us to take a look at on the show, or if you have something you want to put on the Geek Community Notice Board, info at destinationvenus.co.uk is the place to send all of that. That's info at destinationvenus.co.uk. Uh, I am just going to take a, a, just a second to plug something we're doing at the shop. I, this is not an advert for the shop, but one of the things that Destination Venus is doing now is um, running a kind of little donations thing. We have a little pot on the, on the counter uh, for spare change, and we're going to use that money. We are using that money to buy comics for kids. Uh, that's individual kids who might be coming in for their first comic, not sure what to try. We can give them something for free, funded by that. Um, or we've also subsidised putting comics in some primary schools in and around Harrogate. I was able to let one primary school last week have about 200 quids worth of comics uh, for £25 because I subsidised it from those donations. It's not the sort of thing that as a business I can afford to just do, but it is a thing that the generosity of our customers is enabling us to do uh, and links to how you can chip in if you feel you want to in the show notes. As I say, this is not about getting money in the shop. This is about getting comics out to kids. So uh, take a look at that if you're interested. And if you are a school and you want some comics, info at destinationvenus.co.uk. Hit us up. And that's it. All that remains is to remind you that Geeking with Destination Venus is a copyright feature of Venus Rising Media, engineered here in Harrogate by me. Um, and as the engineer, can I just make a quick apology for the power tools in the background? They were unavoidable. There's nothing I could do. We will be here next week with more geeky stuff. Until then, be kind to yourself. 
Be kind to everybody else. Stay safe, stay sane. Until the next time, we all meet together to go geeking.